All right, joining me for this one is Ryan Reynolds. He is the special assistant to Sean Miller at Xavier. And Ryan, it's been pretty fun talking to some of these new assistant coaches because this is like a new world for them. Them coming to Cincinnati and getting to experience the city a little bit, it's been a completely new experience for some of these guys. But for you, that's not the case at all. You are a Cincinnati guy. This is your home. What has it been like after being away for 13 years, getting to come back to, to live in Cincinnati and work in Cincinnati again? It's crazy. You know, it's, it's in this business, it very rarely goes full circle. Um, you know, where, where you actually end up back at a place where you started, you know, I, I went to Xavier as an undergrad, I got my master's degree from Xavier. Um, you know, so, so for it to be, you know, I was out of the city for 14 years, like you said, and, and, you know, for, for it to go where I left. And when you leave in college basketball, you honestly never think you're ever going to go back. Um, so you almost just accept the fact that you're gone from the city that I grew up in. Uh, and then for it to go completely full circle and for us to be back at Xavier, it's pretty incredible to be honest. And, and it's, it's a surreal feeling. And, you know, like I've been saying for the last year and three or four months now, it's different, but it's still the same, you know, like I was here when it was the A-10, um, and we were kind of building, and at this point, after being in the Big East for, I believe, 10 years now, um, all the changes that they've done to, to, I'd say, just keep Cintas as an amazing on-campus arena, um, you know, it's the same shell, but everything is just kind of souped up. Yeah, definitely. Have, have you taken the rest of the guys to any certain spots that are your favorites to kind of show off the city a little bit? You know, the the... I really was a big fan of Mount Adams at the end of my time. <laughs> it's changed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, that's actually, uh, it's, it, it almost like doesn't even exist anymore. Yeah. Um, that's actually where my parents met at the pavilion. Um, it God knows when, yeah. but, 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 uh, you know, it doesn't even exist anymore. So, you know, the, the in and around Xavier, you know, like I like Quatman's cafe, uh, and, and, and you know, all the Cincinnati classics, you know, I would say Skyline isn't necessarily for everybody. Either you love it or you hate it. Um, I'm going to say David Miller being a West Coaster. He doesn't really, uh, uh, he's not a big Skyline guy. But another West Coaster, Ryan Anderson, he's all about it. So it's just kind of hit or miss. But yeah. you know, it's, it's great being back in the city. Yeah, Skyline is always a tough one with the out-of-towners. But uh, right. it's fun to see people that actually do like it, like Ryan Anderson. Um your first five years at Xavier, right? That you were yeah. initially on the team, student manager initially, and then graduate assistant. Looking back at those years, I mean, you were involved in two of the school's three Elite Eight runs. It was yeah. probably about as good of a five-year run as you could possibly invo be involved with Xavier basketball for. Do you have any go-to stories that you tell people about those years or those times? Well, you know, it, it was, a, you know, so I grew up here in Cincinnati. I really – I. I grew up a Kentucky fan. So at that point it was because Kentucky was always on TV. Um, I never really was a Bearcat and I would have cheered for Xavier in the shootout. But at the time Xavier wasn't on TV a lot when I was growing up. So I just kind of gravitated towards Kentucky. Um, and then I decided to do that. I wanted to try to get into college basketball. And at the time Xavier, you know, I, I missed, uh, I missed Dave West by one year, but, that was kind of when, when they, 
I say took the big jump. They moved the Centos. You they had Dave West and Romain Sato and Lionel Chalmers and all those guys. So I was a freshman when Thad was in his last year at Xavier. I caught that first Elite Eight run. Um, so like I kind of hit lightning in a bottle because it was it was I got there at the right time and we went Elite Eight and then Sean took over. Um, it had a little bit of a down year because we lost so much from the year before. Um, and then we made the tournament. Uh, we lost to Gonzaga with Adam Morrison in Salt Lake City. Uh, the following year, we had beat BYU in the first round, lost in the infamous Ohio State Greg Oden game that everyone thought we had won uh, and lost that one. And, and that technically was my undergraduate, like senior year. Um, and then the following year, went to the, the Elite Eight and lost to UCLA. And uh, like that was a really fun team. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I was really at the right place at the right time. I have to imagine you, you go through that stretch with a program. It builds a lot of passion. I mean, I, I can sense it since you've been back that you care a lot about this place. Yeah. But I would imagine that stretch really built a love for Xavier's basketball program with you. And those guys, you know, like I came in with Justin Dolman uh, and Justin Cage. So, like, I still, if I see those guys right now, I mean, it, it's almost like we were we were just back in school living at the Commons. Um, so, so like, it's great seeing those guys. Stanley Burrell, Josh Duncan, uh, Brian Thornton, you know, are, are all guys that, like, I'm still in touch with today. Um and, you know, it was just an excited time because at that point, basically every year we were right there to win the A-10, um, either the regular season or the tournament. And, and you know, our expectations were to make the tournament. And, and at that time, it was people were, were everyone kind of knew about Xavier, but our tournament success um, all kind of started right around at that point. So it was a fun time to be there. You were mentioning how that was back in the A-10 days, and obviously that was a, a very different time in, in Xavier history. What was your favorite and least favorite road trip in the oh. A-10 days? That's a tough one. You that know, is a tough one. The, the, you know, I, 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 I would say the most fun place to go was was uh, at Dayton when we would win. Uh, it's it's a great atmosphere up there, and, and, and you know, that, that – I'd say for fans that are probably younger right now, they don't realize how much of a rivalry that was, especially because we played each other twice. Um, but if you won at UD Arena, that was a incredible feeling when when uh, you could kind of hear that uh, a stupid go Dayton Flyer chant um, and kind of walk out of the gym with a W. And that's it's a great atmosphere for college basketball up there. So it was just a really fun place to play. Um, I would say my least favorite probably a tie between going to Fordham and Rose Hill gym, which is like at this point, probably 125 years old um, as a manager, like the locker room they would put us in was the football locker room. You had to go down a ton of steps in the winter. It was cold as heck in there um, in LaSalle. Um, oh, yeah. And LaSalle was tough because their, their gym was over a pool. So you could kind of smell the chlorine um, in the arena and uh, in the locker room, again, was like it was like three floors below the main gym. So as a manager, you're, you're just going up and down steps 
the whole day with all of our stuff. So I'd have to put those two as my least favorite. Yeah, from a logistical perspective, the LaSalle gym sounds like an absolute nightmare yeah. for you guys. Yeah, uh, it was not fun. Uh, this is skipping ahead a little bit, but now that you're in the Big East, is there a, a favorite road trip in the Big East for you? You know, this past year, I, I, you know, I haven't really been to a lot of these places until this year. Um, you know, it's it's especially compared to the Pac-12 it's a lot of big cities and in the Pac-12 it's a you know there are a few big cities but there's also a lot of small college towns so it's a little bit uh, of a different feel I mean I I enjoyed going to all the big cities um there's a few incredible home courts um you know like I know we didn't play great in the game but that the Paul trip just with I like their new arena the hotel that we stay at is real close to the arena you can it's like attached yeah I mean, you literally just walked across. Yeah. yeah, it's great. I mean, that's that's a just as an ops guy, that's like a trip you dream of. Um, but no, there's there's some incredible. You know, I thought the game at UConn. I had, I had played UConn uh, at Arizona at Gamble or uh, at the XL Center, and it was bonkers. I think that was Hurley's first year at UConn. But at Gamble, uh, I'll tell you, it, it was really loud in there. Um, and it was a game where we got up and then they went on a crazy run and we just kind of held them off. And in the middle of the crazy run, I mean, you could hardly hear yourself think. So um, there's there's just some great college basketball atmospheres in the Big East. It's, it's, it's obviously it's a college basketball conference at its best. So we were talking about like your days as a manager and, and then a graduate assistant. What made you take this path into starting as yeah. a manager and then deciding, hey, maybe I can parlay this into something more? Because a lot of people, it ends after those couple of years as yeah. manager and they move on to do something else. So my dad um, is a 40 plus year high school coach. Uh, he coached here in Cincinnati um, at Madeira for the longest time, about 25 years. And then he was at Wyoming and uh, at Mount Healthy High Schools before that. Um, he actually continued to coach in Arizona, in Tucson, um, actually coached Sean's youngest son, Braden, um, as a junior and senior and helped him win a state title um, out there in Arizona. So that's kind of why I wanted to get into basketball. That was always kind of my path because of my dad. Um, and when, when it kind of came down to colleges, I looked at Kentucky, I looked at Xavier, and I looked at Miami, Ohio. Um, I wanted to be a manager because that was really my only path to, to at least make the effort to, to if I wanted to get into college basketball, if you're not going to play, I'd say really being a, a student manager is your only path. So um, I looked at Kentucky and as you can imagine, they had 8,700 managers and it's, it's, a, it's a whole different deal. Um, I think I could have done it there, but it just, it wasn't going to be the same. And then, I visited Xavier and my dad connected with at the time, Bill Comar, who was the ops guy for Sean. The first time he was the head coach uh, and he was the ops guy for Thad. And yeah, it just kind of worked out where there was a smaller group of managers. I knew we were going to be good. Um, a lot of the managers that when I was a freshman were going to be seniors. So I kind of knew when I became a sophomore that I'd get a lot of responsibility. Um, and one of the great things about Xavier is, is, even though we're, we're a smaller athletic department, um, it actually is great for the managers because 
at Xavier, we rely on the managers to do a lot of things. Um, and, it, you know, if you really think about it on Sean's staff over the years, I mean, I was a manager for him. David Miller was a manager for him. Um, Adam Cohen was a manager at Arizona for Coach Olson. Uh, on our step, Cam Miller, you know, was a manager at Arizona. Um, Mario was like a student assistant in, in his time at Xavier as an undergrad. I mean, and if you look at his other assistant coaches, Joe Pasternak, who's the head coach at Santa Barbara right now, was a student manager for Bobby Knight. So, like, it, it's just he really trusts managers. Um, and in large part, it's, it, it's because we rely on the managers to do a lot. So if you were me and, and you know, at the time, I didn't necessarily know what I was getting into, but it ended up working out great just because at Xavier, um, our managers have a lot of responsibilities and it, it kind of kind of jump starts them into in, into a career path with either in coaching on the college basketball staff or there's a lot of guys that are equipment managers. Um, the Ohio State football head equipment manager um, is a guy named Kevin Reese, and he was a student manager with me at Xavier. Um, I think the guy for Syracuse is a former Xavier manager. The equipment manager at Arizona is a is an ex Xavier manager, Brian Brigger. So it's it just it's a great it's a great jumping board for for all managers at Xavier to kind of get into the college athletics world. Yeah, that's interesting because I don't feel like it necessarily works out that way with other head coaches in every program yeah. that they are able to be empowered and move up through the ranks that way with, with the same head coach. Um, speaking of your job description now, I mean, you've moved up the ranks multiple times since those days. And looking back at what you were in charge of at Arizona, it seems like uh, big construction projects, jersey stuff, scheduling, travel – I think a lot of people hear that from the Xavier side of things and think, wasn't that what Mario does at Xavier? So how have you and Mario kind of split duties? Has your job changed much? Are you guys working on everything together? What's that, that like now? Yeah. So um, I was lucky enough as a manager that, you know, I I got to, I got to learn under Mario and at the time, Bill Comar, um, who is another longtime ops guy and, and, I would say those guys couldn't be, I'd say, more different in what they do and their strengths. So I was able to kind of pull the strengths off of both of them. And, I mean, I looked at being a manager as like a four-year internship, and I basically just learned and watched everything that those guys did. So, you know, in my time in Arizona, I I would say that in large part how Mario's been at Xavier, they were just kind of one of me. and, and as time has kind of moved on in college athletics with NIL um, and just all the other changing of landscapes and, you know, and, and it just started this July, you're allowed to have a few more assistant coaches on the floor. So a lot of the guys that had uh, a director of player development or director of recruiting are guys that are more like coaches in waiting. Um, and they kind of focus more on the basketball side of things and the ops guy, you know, like on the ops side of it. So as those guys are, are now actually able to move more into a assistant coach's role, um, it takes the ops ops things that those guys were doing kind of away. And it, it's all falls on me and Mario. So having two of us is a huge deal. You know, 
up in the offices, we kind of share the same office. So it's easy for us to work off of each other um, and kind of tag team everything. So I'd say really all of the ops stuff, you know, when it comes to our game scheduling, our practice scheduling, um, academics, housing, financial aid, NIL, which is obviously a really big thing now, um, you know, on-campus recruiting when we have kids that are on visits, um, our summer camps, just trying to manage Sean's schedule. Um, it kind of falls on just both of us. Um, and, and, you know, it's great because Mario is, is incredible uh, at doing things on the computer, you know, when it comes to like graphics and like video and stuff like that. And that's, I would say the most incredible thing about it is it's all self-taught. He didn't like go to school for that. He just kind of, he just kind of taught himself, um, which I am at a much, much lower level on the computer than he is. But like everything that I know, I watched him when I was a manager and that's kind of how I learned. So it's, it's a great deal having me and Mario. Cause I, I, I'd say most college basketball programs around the country, you know, uh, at first the ops guy was, was a straight, it was kind of a jumping board again. Like if you want to be an assistant coach, that's kind of the route that you go. Right. Um, and I'd say in the last 15 to 20 years, it's, it's, it's kind of more changed where, where the ops guys are kind of staying with the head coach and you kind of become that guy's person, you know, where, where, you know, I've been with, uh, I've been with Sean now in some capacity. I want to say it's 18 out of 19 years or 17 out of 18 years. And Mario was obviously with him the first time. Um, and then this time. So I think there's just, as the head coach, they just like feeling comfortable with the people that are on their staff. And we don't really ask him a ton of questions. We just kind of know what he likes at this point um, and try to keep it. So we're moving, you know, from one thing to the next thing, if it's our travel or our schedule. So, you know, him and the assistant coaches can just focus on coaching and recruiting. You were mentioning 18 out of 19 years being with Sean. I mean, at this point, I'm going to say this. I understand he has a son on the staff, but I'm going to say you probably know him better than anyone on the staff currently, given the amount of time yeah. you spent together as adults. Um, it's, it's, it's wild. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it really is. So I want to get back to some of the, the op stuff that you do. But one of the questions when you first got here, when you guys first started playing games this year that I kept getting is, who is the guy that Sean's always talking to on the bench sitting next yeah. to him? Yeah. What? you guys have this relationship that's so close. What types of conversations are you having during the game? Because it seems like you are the go-to guy on the bench that he's always saying something to. Well, you know, like that, I get that a lot. And I'd say as much as anything, I kind of keep a chart that, that is just kind of all the game scenarios, you know? So, you know, our, our foul situation, the other team's foul situation, how many timeouts do we have? How many timeouts do they have? How close are we to the bonus? Um, how close is the other team to the bonus? Um, all, all kind of stuff like that. And then he, he's always been really big on what he calls four-minute wars. Um, and that's, you know, like the period of time between the media timeouts. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, every time we're, we're actually in a timeout, that's always how he's going to start the timeout, just in this war. You know, you know in the last four-minute war, we, we say we won seven to four. And he's going to talk about that. So I, I keep that. And then as the war is actually going on, a lot of the times he's asking me what the score is in the war. So like, I'm just constantly updating him with that. So 
it's more, it's a lot of him kind of yelling at me to ask me questions and then me giving the same answers um, over and over again, especially towards the end of the game where he's trying to think about the next play we're going to run or if he's going to call timeout. And he may ask me how many timeouts we have 16 times in a row. Uh, <laughs> and I'm giving the same answer. Uh, each time, but I don't, if I say it six times, he may actually only hear me once. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. That'll be probably be the answer that gets the most response from this whole interview. Cause I know I've gotten that question many times. Like what, what is he always asking him? And uh, that, that, was, that was good stuff. Good insight. And I mentioned you guys relationship being so close. We've heard Sean talk a little bit about it. We've even heard his, heard his wife have some quotes about a change since he's taken yeah. some time away and come to Xavier. Have you sensed that? Do you see any differences in, in Sean Miller pre Xavier second yeah. time around? You know, uh, he's always evolving. Uh, you know, but the one thing that I'll, that I'll say about Sean as a coach is I've never seen anybody that, that he kind of has this reputation of being like a great recruiting, like, like he's a, he's an unbelievable recruiter. And I don't want to say that that's not true, but He's he's incredible with X's and O's um, and, you know, like on the practice court, on the skill workout that's in the month of April, like like that's what he lives for. You know, he, he's he's the son of a of a high school coach that that he kind of grew up in that whole world, almost the same world that I grew up in. But like he was he's always been that guy in the the how amazing he is like how fast he can pick things up um you know when it comes to the game is just I've never I've never been around anybody like that um and then you know like I think just as he gets older his kids are now out of school um it just I think it just kind of changes you um you know our our offense has continued to evolve from our time at Arizona to here and I think uh our offense how we played last year uh, it's a it's a really fun style that I think a lot of kids that that's what they're excited about playing going up and down. Um, that's probably the biggest change from Arizona to Xavier this time is just you know his his ability to adapt um, and change how we play, um, which it's hard for some coaches to kind of let go. Um, and I think in 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 the year that he was out. Um, he really did a deep dive on just how he wanted to play. And, and this is kind of what we came up with, which in year one, to, to I, I, I think we led the entire NCAA in assists per game. Um, it worked. <laughs> so, so, um, and our team really fit the offense, you know, so I think that helped as well, but um, he, he really studied the game in the year that he was away Um and then on top of everything else, he, he, he's he's always had just a huge soft spot and appreciation and love for Xavier. So I think him being back, um, you know, at a place that is so basketball centric, um, it just kind of was the perfect combination. I don't want to take up too, too much of your time because I told you we're about at the time limit that yeah. I gave you originally. Do you have a couple more minutes for scheduling yeah. and some yeah. other things real quick? Um sure. Were you guys happy with the way the non-conference schedule came together this year? You just released it this past week. Did that turn out as you were yeah. hoping? You know, I think you're always kind of looking for balance. Um, in, in, you know, like 
if you hear Sean talk about the Big East, he he talks a lot about how it's you know it's it's a a full twenty game round robin now with UConn being in, uh, and, and you know just it is after going through it one year, it is just a total monster. Um, all of the road games, you know, like I'd say for the most part, have unbelievable crowds. And even if you're playing a team that may not be having a great year, you have to be at your best to win that game. Um, and not every conference is like that. So I think that that is probably one of the things about the Big East where, you know, if you're going to play 31 games in the regular season, you got 20 monsters, you know, that, that are just already sitting there in the Big East. Um and then you throw in, you know, obviously the shootout is always a big game. It doesn't matter how good or bad either team is. It's going to be a war. Um, and then you have, you know, have the Gavit games that is always with the Big Ten. And then you have the Big 12 challenge, which, um, you know, at Arizona, we didn't have those challenges. And I was always, I was always hungry to have those because it kind of made it easier on not having to schedule the teams. Um but at the same point, when they throw at Purdue at you, I don't know if I feel as good about it because that's obviously a monster game. Yes. Um, the the but, but you know it's just kind of sitting there, and then you just kind of plan around it. So you're trying to have some balance of of our team's going to be young with a lot of new guys, um, and, and and then our our philosophy with the MTEs um, are. I'd say for the most part, after they changed a few of, of the scheduling rules, it's kind of leaning towards more of the two-game neutral events. Because um, if you're going to play those with the other stuff on our schedule, if you're playing 25 games against high major power six conference teams, um, and, you know, like if you think about our MTE this year, um, you have a Pac-12 team in Washington, and then San Diego State – um, in St. Mary's at Arizona, we played against them a lot. So I know exactly who those programs are. And even though they may not be um, in a power six conference, I mean, obviously San Diego State was just a national championship game. St. Mary's is a perennial top 25 team. I mean, that's that's a heck of a field. So our, our 25 games against high major teams, I mean, it's it's – as good as our schedule was last year, almost in my opinion. There's there's an extra guarantee game this year, but I mean you have to have some balance, and and I think our schedule is exactly what Sean's kind of looking for. I know when I talked to Mario, this was actually on Selection Sunday last year. We did a a live show, and he he uh-huh. hopped on for a few minutes. And one of the things he talked about was with the net, it's very challenging to schedule because there just aren't enough data points yet to know exactly what the committee's looking for it with the RPI. You had 20 years worth of data to say, okay, if you had this strength of schedule and this record and whatever, you would be a tournament team. And with the net, there just hasn't been that year yet because you have COVID years, multiple of them that screwed things up and it's just not there. Are you, are you starting to feel like you have a little more insight or a, a little bit more to go off of, or is it still pretty much just like anyone's guess? I think there's more and more insight coming. You know, I, I think the biggest thing, and, and it, it, it's the way you, I, I think the net is still able to be manipulated right now. They they have, have tried to kind of, I'd, I'd say, control that a little bit. Um, 
but the the efficiency part of the net on offensive and defensive efficiency um, is one of the things where like if you if you play a game and, and if you have the chance to win by twenty five, you better win by twenty five because it, it'll it it sounds crazy, but like it helps your net um, you know eight to ten spots. Uh, so if you can get those big wins, you know, if they're against a guaranteed type of a team, it still, it still helps a lot. If you can get one of them against a team that's good, um, you know, like if I use UConn as the, the example last year that, you know, the whole year they were kind of stuck in that top five of the net. And it's because when they went to PK 85, they played Alabama and they beat them by like 30. Right. Um, and then they, they, I think they played Oregon and they won by like 20. Um, and then they beat Iowa state maybe. And I think they won by like 15. If you have like a few neutral wins like that against high level teams where efficiency wise, you just kind of dominated the game. That's just a really, really big deal. You know, like I think if you look for on our schedule last year, uh, when we beat, I want to say either Seton Hall or no, I think it would have been St. John's at home. And, and we just kind of ran away with the game. And I think we won by, you know, a solid margin. It helped our net just at such a huge level on the next day. So it's hard. It's hard to really manipulate it. It really comes down to like, it sounds basic, but you just have to win the games. You know, like, obviously, the more games you win, the better. But I think the biggest thing that we've learned is if you have the ability to win by 20, win by 20. Um, if you're going to if you're going to put uh, at the end of the game, it's a disaster. You know, if you if you sub a lot and the other team is still pressing um, and it's like in, instead of winning by 20, you end up winning by eight. Right. And, and, you know, you still win the game and you still want it comfortably, but it affects your net. So, like, I think that's that's what the teams have kind of figured out, um, and and until they kind of address that change with efficiency, I think they kind of help the scoring margin part of it. But efficiency is still the one thing that can manipulate it. Do you have a, a white whale from a scheduling standpoint, whether that be event, team, location, something out there that you've always wanted to play in? <sighs> You know, I'd, I'd say I've been lucky to play in a lot of things. Um, I, I would say as far as like a tournament or like a neutral site game, not really. Um, I, as far as like a home and home goes, you know, I've never played at Kansas. And I would say I don't know if I want to experience it or not. Um <laughs> because it doesn't go well for most people that go there yeah. as a basketball but, fan, maybe, but yeah, <laughs> maybe yeah, not as a competitor. That's, that's, that's like the, you know, I, I've been just about everywhere else. Um, but you know, like I'd, I'd say as far as like MTEs go, like I've been to Maui three or four times and, and it's a really, it's a really fun tournament to go to if you have a good team. Um, if you don't have a good team, or if you're just okay with how with how those fields are, it can really go from a fun time to not a fun time very quickly. Um, you know, so I, yeah, I'd say at the end of the day too, like our home court 
is so incredible that that you know if I'm being selfish, the more that we can play at Cintas, um, it's better for everybody. You know, like I want our fans to be able to see big games. Uh, you know, like I I know if teams come in the Cintas, uh, not everyone completely understands how great of a home court it is, and they can kind of catch some teams off guard. Um, but I can't say that there's like a dream tournament, you know, at the end of the day, my dream is like at the end of the season, I want to be at the final four. Right. You know, that's sure. I'm sure that's what everybody would say. And unfortunately as a manager and as like a full-time staff member, I'm own five in the elite eight, um, which is like a nightmare round for me. Uh, so, so at some point we're going to actually break down that wall, but, but the, the, you know, the ultimate goal would obviously to be in the final four and playing that football stadium where there's a hundred thousand people watching you and only about 10,000 of those seats. You can actually see the floor. Are there any uh, changes coming for this year's jerseys that fans can be expecting? Or is there a big overhaul coming in the next couple of years? That's, that's more Mario's department. He's a lot okay. more stylish than I am. Okay. Uh, I, I think for this upcoming year, it'll probably be pretty similar. Um, and I'd say beyond that, I don't know if we've really gotten that far, but, um, our uniforms for this year, I think will will be pretty much the same, you know, like the one change I'm sure everyone saw is you're allowed to wear six, seven, eight, nine. Um, and, and on the, this upcoming year, Quincy Oliver is going to wear number eight. So he's going to be kind of, uh, our first guy to take advantage of that rule. And I would know, I would say a little known fact of that rule is Mario is actually the one that proposed it to the NCAA. Really? So I, I personally call it the Mario Mercurio rule. Um, well, now we will too, obviously. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think he had actually tried to do it a few years before COVID. Um, and then he proposed it again this past spring, and it actually got accepted. Was um, that about opening up more numbers to be used in yeah. case you want to retire certain numbers? Yeah, you know, so at Xavier, you know, obviously when we retired the four jerseys that we have retired, it's it, it's not just retiring the jersey, you're retiring the number. Yeah. And there's just not a lot of numbers left if you can only wear zero through five. Yeah. Um, at Arizona, we, you know, there was a bunch of retired jerseys, but they didn't retire the number, um, which is cool, but also kind of takes away the effect Um of not letting somebody wear, you know, the actual number that's hanging in the rafters. Right. So I think that was kind of Mario's intent. And obviously it opens up a lot more numbers. Um, and really when you think about it in the NBA, you can wear whatever number you want in, in, uh, international basketball, you can wear whatever you want. So, um, I don't know for whatever reason, um, high school basketball in the States and then college basketball in the States is kind of their last place where, they had the zero through five rule. So um, it's cool to see that go away because I, I think it'll just open up some some interesting numbers. I think eight is going to be a hot number uh, just because of Kobe, and I think six will be a hot number too. But um, the the it'll be fun to see that, and everyone should refer to that as the Mercurio rule. I mean, will we be seeing like – you guys aren't going to let someone wear 88 or anything, are you? You know – it, 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 it's a good question. I mean, I guess if they want to, they can <laughs> legally. Um, I, 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 I know, know Mario well enough yeah. to know he's not letting anyone wear something stupid. I, 
Yeah, you know, there's a few numbers out there for sure that I'm sure I'll talk. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but, 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 you know, like at, at, at the end of the day, if a kid really wants to wear a specific number, like in the world of like recruiting, that's an easy way we can make somebody happy and say, if you want to wear that number, you can wear that number. Sure. Um, so, so I don't think a lot of kids really grow up dreaming of wearing six, seven, eight, nine or 18 or 19, but I mean, you never know. I mean, at this point, you got a guy like Luca wearing seventy-seven. Oh so, yeah, forgot about you know, that. Good call. So it it, it happens. It, it happens more than you think, especially when you watch like the Dream Team, or, or like the international games where they wear like one through fifteen. So, but no, it's it's a uh, it, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. All right, we'll wrap it up with this because we're, we're way over the time I, I asked you for. Do you have a personal favorite Xavier jersey? So I I really am a fan of the of the jerseys that we wore with Dave West and then okay. I, I would say we wore those are those uh, the Reeboks with the no going so around it? it was the original Nike jersey so okay with the this, sort of bigger like yeah cutoffs. so it had the big script Xavier on the on the front um, had kind of the white panel down the side that had the had like the navy line going through it and the x on the shorts um it would be the you know like if you look at that 04 elite eight run that was the jersey that we were wearing then um the the you know it actually originally i think was a kentucky uniform it was it was kind of the kentucky uniform they wore when they had keith bogans and all those guys and then we kind of adopted it as the xavier uniform but it was the original time at Nike where we were going black, navy, and white. Um, I just think it's a really clean look, and I, I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a huge fan of just the X logo. Um, I'm like I'm cool with the musketeer head, and that's fine. But in the time when I was a student, I mean, the X was really the only logo that we rolled with, um, and wore the you know as the only X school in college athletics, like. I love just riding that X out. Same. It's so recognizable. Yeah. And I think that's so, so big from a branding perspective that it's really unique. Well, Ryan, this was awesome. Thank you so much time. There's a million other things I could ask yeah. you about, but we'll save it for a, another podcast. Uh, appreciate you taking some time out of your busy day and joining us. That sounds good, Rick. Thanks for having me. All right. He is Ryan Reynolds, special assistant to Sean Miller at Xavier.